This performance is a co-production of loudlit.org and Literal Systems. The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain Performed by Mark Devine Chapter 36 As soon as we reckoned everybody was asleep that night, we went down the lightning rod and shut ourselves up in the lean-to and got out our pile of foxfire and went to work. We cleared everything out of the way about four or five foot along the middle of the bottom log. Tom said we was right behind Jim's bed now, and we'd dig in under it. And when we got through, there couldn't nobody in the cabin ever know there was a hole there because Jim's counterpin hung down most of the ground and you'd have to raise it up and look under to see the hole. So we dug and dug with the case knives till most midnight, and then we was dog-tired and our hands was blistered, and yet you couldn't see we'd done anything hardly. At last I says, This ain't no thirty-seven-year job. This is a thirty-eight-year job, Tom Sawyer. He never said nothing, but he sighed and pretty soon he stopped digging, and then for a good little while I know that he was thinking. Then he says, It ain't no use, Huck. It ain't a-going to work. If we was prisoners, it would, because then we'd have as many years as we wanted, in no hurry, and we wouldn't get but a few minutes to dig every day while they was changing watches, and so our hands wouldn't get blistered, and we could keep it up right along, year in and year out, and do it right, in the way it ought to be done. But we can't fool along. We got to rush. We ain't got no time to spare. If we was to put in another night this way, we'd have to knock off for a week to let our hands get well. Couldn't touch a case knife with them sooner. Well, then, what we going to do, Tom? I'll tell you. It ain't right, and it ain't moral, and I wouldn't like it to get out, but there ain't only just the one way. We got to dig em out with the picks and let on its case knives. Now you're talking, I says. Your head gets leveler and leveler all the time, Tom Sawyer, I says. Picks is the things, moral or no moral, and as for me, I don't care shucks for the morality of it nohow. When I start in to steal a nigger or a watermelon, or a Sunday school book, I ain't no ways particular how it's done, so it's done. What I want is my nigger, or what I want is my watermelon, or what I want is my Sunday school book, and if a pick's the handiest thing, that's the thing I'm a-going to dig that nigger, or that watermelon, or that Sunday school book out with, and I don't give a dead rat what the authorities thinks about it nother. Well, he says, there's excuse for picks and letting on in a case like this. If it weren't so... I wouldn't approve of it, nor I wouldn't stand by and see the rules broke, because right is right, and wrong is wrong, and a body ain't got no business doing wrong when he ain't ignorant and knows better. It might answer for you to dig Jim out with a pick without any letting on, because you don't know no better. But it wouldn't for me, because I do know better. Give me a case knife. He had his own by him, but I handed him mine. He flung it out and says, Give me a case knife. I didn't know just what to do, but then I thought. I scratched around amongst the old tools and got a pickaxe and give it to him, and he took it and went to work and never said a word. He was always just that particular, full of principle. So then I got a shovel, and then we picked and shoveled, turn about, and made the fur fly. We stuck to it about a half an hour, which was as long as we could stand up, but we had a good deal of a hole to show for it. When I got upstairs, I looked out at the window and see Tom doing his level best with the lightning rod, but he couldn't come it. His hands was so sore. 
At last, he says, It ain't no use. It can't be done. What do you reckon I better do? Can't you think of no way? Yes, I says, but I reckon it ain't regular. Come up the stairs and let on it's a lightning rod. So we done it. Next day, Tom stole a pewter spoon and a brass candlestick in the house for to make some pens for Jim out of and six tallow candles. And I hung around the nigger cabins and laid for a chance and stole three tin plates. Tom says it wasn't enough, but I said nobody wouldn't ever see the plates that Jim throwed out because they'd fall in the dog fennel and jimson weeds under the window hole. Then we could tote them back and he could use them over again. So Tom was satisfied. Then he says, Now the thing to study out is how to get the things to Jim. Take them in through the hole, I says, when we get it done. He only just looked scornful and said something about nobody ever heard of such an idiotic idea, and then he went to studying. By and by, he said he had ciphered out two or three ways, but there weren't no need to decide on any of them yet. He said we'd got to post Jim first. That night we went down the lightning rod a little after ten, and took one of the candles along and listened under the window hole and heard Jim snoring, so we pitched it in, and it didn't wake him. Then we whirled in with the pick and shovel, and in about two hours and a half the job was done. We crept in under Jim's bed and into the cabin, and pawed around and found the candle and lit it, and stood over Jim a while, and found him looking hearty and healthy. And then we woke him up gentle and gradual. He was so glad to see us he most cried, and called us honey, and all the pet names he could think of, and was for having us hunt up a cold chisel to cut the chain off of his leg with right away, and clearing out without losing any time. But Tom, he showed him how unregular it would be, and sat down and told him all about our plans, and how we could alter them in a minute any time there was an alarm, and not to be the least afraid, because we would see he got away sure. So Jim, he said it was all right, and we sat there and talked over old times a while, and then Tom asked a lot of questions, and when Jim told him Uncle Silas come in every day or two to pray with him, and Aunt Sally come in to see if he was comfortable and had plenty to eat, and both of them was kind as they could be, Tom says, Now I know how to fix it. We'll send you some things by them. I said, Don't do nothing of the kind. It's one of the most jackass ideas I ever struck. But he never paid no attention to me. Went right on. It was his way when he'd got his plan set. So he told Jim how we'd have to smuggle in the rope ladder pie and other large things by Nat, the nigger that fed him, and he must be on the lookout and not be surprised and not let Nat see him open them. And we would put small things in Uncle's coat pockets and he must steal them out. And we would tie things to Aunt's apron strings or put them in her apron pocket, if we got a chance, and told them what they would be and what they was for and told him how to keep a journal on the shirt with his blood and all that. He told him everything. Jim, he couldn't see no sense in the most of it, but he allowed we was white folks and knowed better than him. So he was satisfied and said he would do it all just as Tom said. Jim had plenty corncob pipes and tobacco, so we had a right down good sociable time. Then we crawled out through the hole and so home to bed with hands that looked like they'd been chawed. Tom was in high spirits. He said it was the best fun he ever had in his life and the most intellectual and said if he only could see his way to it, we would keep it up all the rest of our lives and leave Jim to our children to get out, for he believed Jim would come to like it better and better the more he got used to it. He said that in that way, it could be strung out to as much as 80 year and would be the best time on record, and he said it would make us all celebrated that I'd had a hand in it.
In the morning, we went out to the woodpile and chopped up the brass candlestick into handy sizes, and Tom put them and the pewter spoon in his pocket. Then we went to the nigger cabins, and while I got Nat's notice off, Tom shoved a piece of candlestick into the middle of a corn pone that was in Jim's pan, and we went along with Nat to see how it would work, and it just worked noble. When Jim bit into it, it most mashed all his teeth out, and there weren't ever anything could have worked better. Tom said so himself. Jim, he never let on but what it was, only just a piece of rock or something like that that's always getting into bread, you know. But after that, he never bit into nothing but what he jabbed his fork into it in three or four places first. And whilst he was a-standin' there in the dimmish light, here comes a couple of the hounds bulging in from under Jim's bed, and they kept a-pilin' in till there was eleven of them, and there weren't hardly any room in there to get your breath. By jings, we forgot to fasten that lean-to door. The nigger Nat, he only just hollered witches once, and keeled over onto the floor amongst the dogs, and begun to groan like he was dying. Tom jerked the door open and flung out a slab of Jim's meat, and the dogs went for it and in two seconds he was out himself and back again and shut the door, and I knowed he'd fix the other door, too. Then he went to work on the nigger, coaxing him and petting him and asking him if he'd been imagining he saw something again. He raised up and blinked his eyes around and says, Mars Sid, you'll say I's a fool, but if I didn't believe I see most a million dogs or devils or summoned, I wished I may die right here in these tracks. I did, most surely, Mars Sid. I felt em. I felt em, sir. Day was all over me. Dad fetch it. I just wished I could get my hands on one of them witches just once. Only just once, it's all I'd asked. But mostly, I wish they'd let me alone, I does. Tom says, Well, I tell you what I think. What makes them come here just at this runaway nigger's breakfast time? It's because they're hungry, that's the reason. You make them a witch pie. That's the thing for you to do. But my landmark, Sid... How's I gwanna make em a witch pie? I don't know how to make it. I hain't ever heard of such a thing before. Well, then, I'll have to make it myself. Will you do it, honey? Will you? I'll worship the ground under your foot, I will. All right, I'll do it, seeing it's you, and you've been good to us and showed us the runaway nigger. But you gotta be mighty careful. When we come around, you turn your back, and then whatever we put in the pan, don't you let on you see it at all. And don't you look when Jim unloads the pan. Something might happen. I don't know what. And above all, don't you handle the witch things. Handle them, Ma Sid. What is you a-talking about? I wouldn't lay the weight of my finger on them. Not for ten hundred thousand billion dollars, I wouldn't. Chapter 37 That was all fixed. So then we went away and went to the rubbish pile in the backyard where they keep the old boots and rags and pieces of bottles and wore out old tin things and all such truck and scratched around and found an old tin wash pan and stopped up the holes as well as we could to bake the pie in and took it down cellar and stole it full of flour and started for breakfast and found a couple of shingle nails that Tom said would be handy for a prisoner to scrabble his name and sorrows on the dungeon walls with and dropped one of them in Aunt Sally's apron pocket which was hanging on a chair and t'other we stuck in the band of Uncle Silas's hat which was on the bureau, because we heard the children say their pa and ma was going to the runaway nigger's house this morning, and then went to breakfast, and Tom dropped the pewter spoon in Uncle Silas's coat pocket, and Aunt Sally wasn't come yet, so we had to wait a little while. And when she come, she was hot and red and cross, and couldn't hardly wait for the blessing, 
and then she went to sluicing out coffee with one hand and cracking the handiest child's head with her thimble with the other, and says, I've hunted high, and I've hunted low, and it does beat all what has become of your other shirt. My heart fell down amongst my lungs and livers and things, and a hard piece of corn crust started down my throat after it, and got met on the road with the cough, and was shot across the table, and took one of the children in the eye and curled him up like a fishing worm, and let a cry out of him the size of a war whoop, and Tom... He turned kind of blue around the gills, and it all amounted to a considerable state of things for about a quarter of a minute, or as much as that, and I would have sold out for half price if there was a bidder. But after that, we was all right again. It was the sudden surprise of it that knocked us so kind of cold. Uncle Silas, he says, It's most uncommon curious. I can't understand it. I know perfectly well I took it off, because... Because you ain't got but one on! Just listen at the man. I know you took it off, and know it by a better way than your wool-gathering memory, too, because it was on the clothesline yesterday. I see it there myself. But it's gone. That's the long and short of it, and you'll just have to change to a red flannel one till I can get time to make a new one. And it'll be the third I've made in two years. It just keeps a body on the jump to keep you in shirts, and whatever you do manage to do with them all is more than I can make out. A body'd think you would learn to take some sort of care of him at your time of life. I know it, Sally, and I do try all I can, but it oughtn't to be altogether my fault because, you know, I don't see them, nor have nothing to do with them except when they're on me, and I don't believe I've ever lost one of them off of me. Well, it ain't your fault if you haven't, Silas. You'd have done it if you could, I reckon. And the shirt ain't all that's gone, nother. There's a spoon gone, and that ain't all. There was ten, and now there's only nine. The calf got the shirt, I reckon, but the calf never took the spoon, that's certain. Why, what else is gone, Sally? There's six candles gone, that's what. The rats could have got the candles, and I reckon they did. I wonder they don't walk off with the whole place the way you're always going to stop their holes and don't do it. And if they weren't fools, they'd sleep in your hair, Silas. You'd never find it out. But you can't lay the spoon on the rats, and that I know. Well, Sally, it's my fault, and I acknowledge it. I've been remiss, but I won't let tomorrow go by without stopping up them holes. Oh, I wouldn't hurry. Next year'll do. Matilda, Angela, Araminta, Phelps. Whack comes the thimble, and the child snatches her claw out of the sugar bowl without fooling around any. Just then, the nigger woman steps on to the passage and says, Mrs., there's a sheet gone. A sheet gone? Well, for the land's sake. I'll stop up them holes today, says Uncle Silas, looking sorrowful. Oh, do shut up. Suppose the rats took the sheet? Where's it gone, Lies? Claire to goodness, I ain't no notion, Miss Sally. She was on the clothesline yesterday, but she done gone. She ain't there no more now. I reckon the world is coming to an end. I never see the beat of it in all my born days. A shirt and a sheet and a spoon... And six cat misses, comes a young yaller wench. Days of brass candlestick missing. Clear out from here, you hussy, or I'll take a skillet to you. Well, she was just a bilin'. I begin to lay for a chance. I reckon I would sneak out and go for the woods till the weather moderated. She kept a raging right along, running her insurrection all by herself, and everybody else mighty meek and quiet. And at last, Uncle Silas, looking kind of foolish, fishes up that spoon out of his pocket. She stopped, 
with her mouth open and her hands up. And as for me, I wished I was in Jerusalem or somewheres. But not long because she says, It's just as I expected. So you had it in your pocket all the time. And like as not, you've got the other things there too. How'd it get there? Well, I really don't know, Sally, he says, kind of apologizing. Or you know I would tell. I was a-studying over my text in Acts 17 before breakfast, and I reckon I put it in there, not noticing, meaning to put my testament in. And it must be so, because my testament ain't in. But I'll go and see. And if the testament is where I had it, I'll know I didn't put it in. And that will show that I laid the testament down and took up the spoon and... Oh, for the land's sake, give a body a rest. Go along now, the whole kitten bilin' of you. And don't come nigh me again till I've got back my peace of mind. I'd a heard her if she'd a said it to herself, let alone speak it out. And I'd a got up and obeyed her if I'd a been dead. As we was passing through the setting room, the old man, he took up his hat and the shingle nail fell out on the floor. And he just merely picked it up and laid it on the mantel shelf and never said nothing and went out. Tom see him do it and remember it about the spoon and says, Well... It ain't no use to send things by him no more. He ain't reliable. Then he says, But he done us a good turn with the spoon anyway, without knowing it. And so we'll go and do him one without him knowing it. Stop up his rat holes. There was a noble good lot of them down cellar, and it took us a whole hour. But we done the job tight and good and shipshape. Then we heard steps on the stairs and blowed out our light and hid. And here comes the old man with a candle in one hand and a bundle of stuff in t'other looking as absent-minded as year before last. He went a-mooning around, first to one rat hole and then another, till he'd been to them all. Then he stood about five minutes, picking tallow drip off of his candle and thinking. Then he turns off slow and dreamy towards the stairs, saying, Well, for the life of me, I can't remember when I done it. I could show her now that I weren't to blame on account of the rats. But never mind. Let it go. I reckon it wouldn't do no good. And so he went on a mumbling upstairs, and then we left. He was a mighty nice old man, and always is. Tom was a good deal bothered about what to do for a spoon, but he said we got to have it, so we took a think. When he had ciphered it out, he told me how we was to do. Then we went and waited around the spoon basket till we see Aunt Sally coming, and then Tom went to counting the spoons and laying them out to one side, and I slid one of them up my sleeve, and Tom says, why, Aunt Sally, there ain't but nine spoons yet. She says, Go along to your play, and don't bother me. I know better, I counted them myself. Well, I've counted them twice, Auntie, and I can't make but nine. She looked out of all patience, but of course she'd come to count. Anybody would. I declare to gracious, there ain't but nine, she says. Why, what in the world? Plague, take the things, I'm counting them again. So I slipped back the one I had, and when she got done counting, she says, Hang the troublesome rubbish. There's ten now. And she looked huffy and bothered both. But Tom says, Why, Auntie, I don't think there's ten. You numbskull, didn't you see me count them? I know, but, well, I'll count them again. So I smooched one, and they come out nine, same as the other time. Well, she was in a tearing way. Just a trembling all over, she was so mad. But she counted and counted, till she got that addled, she'd start to count in the basket for a spoon sometimes, and so three times they come out right, and three times they come out wrong. 
Then she grabbed up the basket and slammed it across the house and knocked the cat galley west. And she said, clear out and let her have some peace. And if we come bothering around her again, betwixt that and dinner, she'd skin us. So we had the odd spoon and dropped it in her apron pocket while she was a-giving us our sailing orders. And Jim got it all right, along with her shingle nail before noon. He was very well satisfied with the business, and Tom allowed it was worth twice the trouble it took, because he said now she couldn't ever count them spoons twice alike again to save her life, and wouldn't believe she'd counted them right if she did, and said that after she'd about counted her head off for the next three days, he judged she'd give it up and offer to kill anybody that wanted her to ever count them any more. So we put the sheet back on the line that night, and stole one out of her closet and kept on putting it back and stealing it again for a couple of days till she didn't know how many sheets she had any more, and she didn't care, and weren't a-going to bully-rag the rest of her soul out about it, and wouldn't count them again not to save her life. She'd rather die first. So we was all right now, as to the shirt and the sheet and the spoon and the candles, by the help of the calf and the rats and the mixed-up counting, and as to the candlestick, it weren't no consequence. It would blow over by and by but that pie was a job. We had no end of trouble with that pie. We fixed it up away down in the woods and cooked it there, and we got it done at last and very satisfactory too, but not all in one day, and we had to use up three wash pans full of flour before we got through, and we got burnt pretty much all over in places and eyes put out with smoke. Because you see, we didn't want nothing but a crust, and we couldn't prop it upright, and she would always cave in. But of course... We thought of the right way at last, which was to cook the latter, too, in the pie. So then we laid in with Jim the second night, and tore up the sheet all in little strings, and twisted them together, and long before daylight we had a lovely rope that you could have hung a person with. We let on it took nine months to make. And in the forenoon we took it down to the woods, but it wouldn't go into the pie. Being made of a whole sheet that way, there was rope enough for forty pies if we'd have wanted them, and plenty left over for soup or sausage or anything you choose. We could have had a whole dinner. But we didn't need it. All we needed was just enough for the pie, and so we throwed the rest away. We didn't cook none of the pies in the wash pan, afraid the solder would melt. But Uncle Silas, he had a noble brass warming pan, which he thought considerable of, because it belonged to one of his ancestors with a long wooden handle that come over from England with William the Conqueror and the Mayflower, or one of them early ships, and was hid away up garret with a lot of other old pots and things that was valuable. Not on account of being any account, because they weren't, but on account of them being relics, you know. And we snaked her out, private, and took her down there. But she failed on the first pies, because we didn't know how, but she come up smiling on the last one. We took and lined her with dough, and set her in the coals, and loaded her up with rag rope, and put on a dough roof, and shut down the lid, and put hot embers on top, and stood off five foot with the long handle, cool and comfortable, and in fifteen minutes she turned out a pie that was a satisfaction to look at. But the person that ate it would want to fetch a couple of kags of toothpicks along, for if that rope ladder wouldn't cramp him down to business, I don't know nothing what I'm talking about, and lay him in enough stomach ache to last him till next time, too. Nat didn't look when we put the witch pie in Jim's pan, and we put the three tin plates in the bottom of the pan under the vittles, and so Jim got everything all right, and as soon as he was by himself, he busted into the pie and hid the rope ladder inside of his straw tick and scratched some marks on a tin plate 
and throwed it out of the window hole. Chapter 38 Making them pens was a distressed, tough job, and so was the saw, and Jim allowed the inscription was going to be the toughest of all. That's the one which the prisoner had to scrabble on the wall, but he had to have it. Tom said he'd got to. There weren't no case of a state prisoner not scrabbling his inscription to leave behind and his coat of arms. Look at Lady Jane Grey, he says. Look at Guilford Dudley. Look at old Northumberland. Why, Huck, suppose it is considerable trouble. What you going to do? How you going to get around it? Jim's got to do his inscription and coat of arms. They all do. Jim says, Why, Moss Tom, I ain't got no coat of arm. I ain't got nothing but this year old shirt, and you knows I gotta keep the journal on that. Oh, you don't understand, Jim. A coat of arms is very different. Well, I says, Jim's right anyway when he says he ain't got no coat of arms because he hain't. I reckon I knowed that, Tom says. But you bet he'll have one before he goes out of this, because he's going out right, and there ain't going to be no flaws in his record. So whilst me and Jim filed away at the pens on a brick bat apiece, Jim a-making his'n out of the brass, and I making mine out of the spoon, Tom set to work to think out the coat of arms. By and by, he said he'd struck so many good ones, he didn't hardly know which to take. But there was one which he reckoned he'd decide on. He says, On the scutcheon we'll have a bend, or, in the dexter base, a saltire murie in the fess, with a dog, couchant, for common charge, and under his foot a chain embattled for slavery, with a chevron vert and a chief engrailed, and three invected lines on a field azure, with the nominal points rampant on a dancing indented, crest, a runaway nigger, sable, with his bundle over his shoulders on a bar sinister, and a couple of ghouls for supporters, which is you and me. Motto, Maggiore, Freda, Minori, Otto. Got it out of a book, means the more haste, the less speed. Gee willikins, I says. What does the rest of it mean? We ain't got no time to bother over that, he says. We got to dig in like all get out. Well, anyway, I says, what's some of it? What's a fess? A fess... Well, a fess is... You don't need to know what a fess is. I'll show him how to make it when he gets to it. Shucks, Tom, I says. I think you might tell a person. What's a bar sinister? Oh, I don't know, but he's got to have it. All the nobility does. That was just his way. If it didn't suit him to explain a thing to you, he wouldn't do it. You might pump at him a week. It wouldn't make no difference. He'd got all that coat of arms business fixed, so now he started in to finish up the rest of that part of the work which was to plan out a mournful inscription, said Jim got to have one, like they all done. He made up a lot, and wrote them out on a paper, and read them off so. 1. Here a captive heart busted. 2. Here a poor prisoner, forsook by the world, and friends fretted his sorrowful life. 3. Here a lonely heart broke, and a worn spirit went to its rest, after thirty-seven years of solitary captivity. 4. Here, homeless and friendless, after thirty-seven years of bitter captivity, perished a noble stranger, natural son of Louis XIV. Tom's voice trembled whilst he was reading them, and he almost broke down. When he got done, he could no way make up his mind which one for Jim to scrabble onto the wall. They was all so good. 
but at last he allowed he would let him scrabble them all on. Jim said it would take him a year to scrabble such a lot of truck onto the logs with a nail, and he didn't know how to make letters besides. But Tom said he would block them out for him, and then he wouldn't have nothing to do but just follow the lines. Then pretty soon he says, Come to think, the logs ain't a-gonna do. They don't have log walls in a dungeon. We got to dig the inscriptions into a rock. We'll fetch a rock. Jim said the rock was worse than the logs. He said it would take him such a pison long time to dig them into a rock he would never get out. But Tom said he would let me help him do it. Then he took a look to see how me and Jim was getting along with the pens. It was most pesky, tedious hard work and slow, and didn't give my hands no show to get well of the sores, and we didn't seem to make no headway hardly. So Tom says, I know how to fix it. We got to have a rock for the coat of arms and mournful inscriptions, and we can kill two birds with that same rock. There's a gaudy big grindstone down at the mill, and we'll smooch it and carve the things on it and file out the pins and the saw on it, too. It weren't no slouch of an idea, and it weren't no slouch of a grindstone nother, but we allowed we'd tackle it. It weren't quite midnight yet, so we cleared out for the mill, leaving Jim at work. We smooched the grindstone and set out to roll her home, but it was a most nation-tough job. Sometimes, do what we could, we couldn't keep her from falling over, and she come mighty near mashing us every time. Tom said she was going to get one of us sure before we got through. We got her halfway, and then was plumb played out and most drowned with sweat. We see it weren't no use. We got to go and fetch Jim. So he raised up his bed and slid the chain off of the bed leg and wrapped it round and round his neck. And we crawled out through our hole and down there, and Jim and me laid into that grindstone and walked her along like nothing. And Tom superintended. He could out-superintend any boy I ever see. He knowed how to do everything. Our hole was pretty big, but it weren't big enough to get the grindstone through. But Jim, he took the pick and soon made it big enough. Then Tom marked out them things on it with the nail and sent Jim to work on them with the nail for a chisel and an iron bolt from the rubbish in the lean-to for a hammer and told him to work till the rest of his candle quit on him and then he could go to bed and hide the grindstone under a straw tick and sleep on it. Then we helped him fix his chain back on the bed leg and was ready for bed ourselves. But Tom thought of something and says, You got any spiders in here, Jim? Nasa, thanks to goodness I ain't, Mars Tom. All right, we'll get you some. But bless you, honey, I don't want none. I was afraid on them. I'd just soon as have rattlesnake around. Tom thought a minute or two and says, It's a good idea, and I reckon it's been done. It must have been done. It stands to reason. Yes, it's a prime good idea. Where could you keep it? Keep what, Mars Tom? Why, a rattlesnake. De goodness gracious alive, Mars Tom. Why, if there was a rattlesnake to come in here... I'd take and bust right out through that log wall I would with my head. Why, Jim, you wouldn't be afraid of it after a little. You could tame it. Tame it? Yes, easy enough. Every animal is grateful for kindness and petting, and they wouldn't think of hurting a person that pets them. Any book will tell you that. You try, that's all I ask. Just try for two or three days. Why, you can get him so in a little while that he'll love you and sleep with you and won't stay away from you a minute and we'll let you wrap him round your neck and put his head in your mouth. Please, Mars Tom, don't talk so. I can't stand it. He'd let me shove his head in my mouth for a favor, ain't it? I'd lay he wait a powerful long time for I asked him. And more than that, 
I don't want him to sleep with me. Jim, don't act so foolish. A prisoner's got to have some kind of a dumb pet, and if a rattlesnake ain't ever been tried, why, there's more glory to be gained in your being the first to ever try it than any other way you could ever think of to save your life. Why, Mars Tom, I don't want no sich glory. Snake take and bite Jim's chin off. Dem where is the glory? No, sir, I don't want no sich doings. Blame it, can't you try? I only want you to try. You needn't keep it up if it don't work. But the trouble all done if the snake bite me while I was a-trying him. Mars Tom, I was willing to tackle most anything that ain't unreasonable. But if you and Huck fetches a rattlesnake in here for me to tame, I was going to leave. That's sure. Well then, let it go. Let it go if you're so bullheaded about it. We can get some garter snakes, and you can tie some buttons on their tails and let on their rattlesnakes, and I reckon that'll have to do. I can stand them, Mars Tom, but blame if I couldn't get along without em, I tell you that. I never know before t'was so much bother and trouble to be a prisoner. Well, it always is when it's done right. You got any rats around here? No, sir. I ain't seen none. Well, we'll get you some rats. Why, Mars Tom, I don't want no rats. They's the dad blamest critters to stir a body and rustle round over him and bite his feet when he's trying to sleep, I ever see. No, sir, give me gyarder snakes if I's got to have em, but don't give me no rats. I ain't got no use for em scarcely. But, Jim, you got to have em. They all do. So don't make no more fuss about it. Prisoners ain't ever without rats. There ain't no instance of it. And they train them and pet them and learn them tricks, and they get to be as sociable as flies. But you got to play music to them. You got anything to play music on? I ain't got nothing but a coarse comb and a piece of paper and a juice harp. But I reckon they wouldn't take no stock in a juice harp. Yes, they would. They don't care what kind of music tis. A juice harp's plenty good enough for a rat. All animals like music. In a prison, they dote on it, especially painful music. And you can't get no other kind out of a juice harp. It always interests them. They come out to see what's the matter with you. Yes, you're all right. You're fixed very well. You want to sit on your bed nights before you go to sleep and early in the mornings and play your juice harp. Play, the last link is broken. That's the thing will scoop a rat quicker than anything else. And when you've played about two minutes, you'll see all the rats and the snakes and spiders and things begin to feel worried about you and come. And they'll just fairly swarm over you and have a noble good time. Yes, day will, I reckon, Mars Tom. But what kind of time is Jim having? Blessed if I can see the pint. But I'll do it if I got to. I reckon I better keep the animals satisfied and have no trouble in the house. Tom waited to think it over and see there wasn't nothing else. And pretty soon he says, Oh, there's one thing I forgot. Could you raise a flower in here, do you reckon? I don't know, but maybe I could, Mars Tom. But it's tolerable dark in here. And I ain't got no use for a flower nohow, and she'd be a powerful sight of trouble. Well, you try it anyway. Some other prisoners has done it. One of them big cattail-looking mullein stalks would grow in here, Mars Tom, I reckon. But she wouldn't be worth half the trouble she caused. Don't you believe it. We'll fetch you a little one, and you plant it in the corner over there and raise it. And don't call it mullein. Call it Pichilla. That's its right name when it's in a prison. And you want to water it with your tears. Why, I got plenty spring water, Mars Tom. You don't want spring water. You want to water it with your tears. It's the way they always do. Why, Mars Tom, 
I lay I can raise one of them mullein stalks twice with spring water, while another man's starting one with tears. That ain't the idea. You got to do it with tears. She'll die on my hands, Mars Tom. She surely will, case I don't scarcely ever cry. So Tom was stumped, but he studied it over, and then saw Jim would have to worry along the best he could with an onion. He promised he would go to the nigger cabins and drop one private in Jim's coffee pot in the morning. Jim said he would just as soon have tobacco in his coffee, and found so much fault with it, and with the work and bothering of raising the mullen, and Jews harping the rats, and petting and flattering up the snakes and spiders and things, on top of all the other work he had to do on pens and inscriptions and journals and things, which made it more trouble and worry and responsibility to be a prisoner than anything he undertook, that Tom most lost all patience with him, and said he was just loading down with more gaudier chances than a prisoner ever had in the world to make a name for himself, and yet he didn't know enough to appreciate them, and they was just about wasted on him. So Jim, he was sorry and said he wouldn't behave so no more. Then me and Tom shoved for bed. This presentation is dedicated by Gordon W. Draper to all of those who will enjoy this Mark Twain masterpiece.